everyone. It's Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the love theorist and I'm joined tonight by Ms. Lisa King, who is a very, very um, close colleague of mine, even though we have very little time together. And what I want to say as part of introducing Lisa, who's going to be talking about how she understands love tonight, is that Lisa and I met. Now, I didn't check with you, but what year was it that you did your master's in social work, Lisa? It was 2017, mm. 18. So I think right. probably 2018 that I Correct. had the pleasure of being think... in your classes. Uh, um, and ditto, back to you. And oh, um, maybe even so it was a year a really before, short... actually. Sorry. It was a year before. Oh, so was that 16, right? 17. 2017. Yeah, yeah. Graduated um, in 18. Okay, so like it, so now a little while ago and um, mm. had the pleasure of being your lecturer. Yeah, easy to do, hey. Um, time passes in a kind of funny way. Um, and I'm a bit surprised it's that long ago. Anyway, Lisa was in my health, mental health class as part of doing her master's in social work. And then I actually didn't know what you did after that for the longest time until fairly recently Lisa made contact with me and I think this is how it went. You invited me to your book launch and uh, and that was pretty cool. And as part of the invitation, you were saying how some of how we engaged as lecturer student had influenced you. And so yeah. I was really delighted. I couldn't wait to get to your book launch. And of course, the beautiful book that you were launching was Finding My Invisible Son. Like Indeed. it's just got the most fascinating title. And and all through Lisa's beautiful book for listeners to know is her artwork, you know, not only her beautiful narrative and really insightful comments, um, based really on your life story, isn't it? It comes up it off is, your life yeah. story and your professional work and yeah. um, all this beautiful artwork. So I just want to give a plug for your book up front, uh, Lisa, as I'm so introducing much. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you um, like and, to see and, it? I don't know if you want to see it. I could hold it up. If you like. Oh, have you got a picture of it? Of <laughs> yeah, um, oh, I don't. Here we go. I've got it. Oh, there here you we go. go. Yeah, got it. yeah, yeah. Oh, I wonder if we can yeah. get it. Get it. It's, so it's, it's nice little, and readable. Oh, that's it. Yeah, there it absolutely. is. With wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah got it thank there. Thank you very much. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, that's one of your pieces of artwork, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of. Sorry. A, it's part of a um, a stretch canvas that's seven feet by five feet. And oh wow, um, wow, yeah. that's really big. And yeah, and it's it, and it was really because it was the first stretch canvas I'd ever done, and um, and it was really as a response to the fact that I I was looking at the Archibald prizes at the time, and I thought, aren't they dull? You know, they've got they've got really nothing imaginary in it, and no seeming meaning in it. So this was a long time ago, and you can see um, how ambitious I am at times um, with regard to how I see things. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to do one myself. <laughs> and, oh, wow, that's, and so that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of touched it up a little later on because I kept thinking about the fact that I, I thought that the the apples and the tree of knowledge weren't round enough, you know. So I just kept looking at all of these paintings that um, Michelangelo had done and Raphael and I thought, oh, that's how I do it. So... I touched it up after that, but oh, it's it's outrageous, and and I've never put it in the Archibald, but it had to be a certain size, and I had to have the mirrors because you weren't allowed to paint from photos. So, and I don't like oh, wow. looking at myself, so I had a little a little mirror that I'd had since I was a kid, and I just hold it up and, and study an eye, and and then draw it, and then 
had to blow it up by 2.5 times the size and it had to be able to oh, fit wow. into the house as well. You know? <laughs> so Good it was idea. <laughs> absurd. It was an absurd adventure, really was. But Look, what's so interesting it. is here we are right at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> and we're just introducing your book and we're already into incredible stories. And, of course, this <laughs> is a story of how that piece of artwork ended up on the front of your beautiful book. So this, mm-hmm. this gives you an indication of what we're up for tonight, folks, because we have this most fascinating human being. And um, <laughs> after, after and Lisa had, of course, some life story before she came and did the social work degree. So if I'm, if I'm getting this right, you were a teacher as well as a counsellor before you yeah. came. And did social work, and now you're an accredited mental health social worker. Yeah, mm, with yes. specialty in the trauma aspect, trauma counselling. Yeah. Mm. So, so Lisa is a fascinating practitioner because so much of her life story um, informs her practice on top of her professional education. Um, and one of, one of the ways that Lisa describes herself in the bio she gave me, I'll just, let's make sure you recognise yourself here, Lisa. Uh, Lisa loves people, life, knowledge, reading, music and painting. As a self-professed idealist and opportunistic dissident, I love that, opportunistic <laughs> dissident. Oh, sorry, I missed out the intellectual bit. Opportunistic <laughs> dissident intellectual. <laughs> Lisa encourages people to grasp every moment to, and opportunity to challenge the status quo. Mm. So why? So there are so many ways this conversation could go tonight and it probably will go all in lots of unusual, unexpected ways. But if we could just um, start at the very least by uh, you saying a little bit, anything you'd like to say about yourself just to warm up the space, further to what I've said, and then telling me something about what love means to you as a starting point. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to do this and to participate in my uh my very first podcast and thank goodness I have you lead the way for me um and and also to let people know that you were incredibly uh, supportive of me when I first approached you because I came to you to um to ask to do a PhD with you and you were lovely about Uh, it yeah and you mm. and I showed you a little bit of my book because that's what I wanted to use for it and uh, and it was just marvelous that that you did that and you tried to set it up but I just didn't really fit into any particular school you know for this book I didn't want to alter it in any way so I want to thank you because that's why I contacted you and said well look I've done it anyway and and thank you for the encouragement yeah so um love is an incredibly huge question and I think it's incredibly huge because it's something that we we take for granted in many ways um and yet it's so magical and it can be so excruciating and um and it's something that's rather invisible you know it's it's really hard to capture in a few minutes um yeah. but it's it's something that i have honestly been thinking about um for the past 48 years uh and perhaps that's when i began my dissidence uh, when uh, yeah. i i was told by my father that um that I do love God um, when I was seven years old, when I I knew for certain that I didn't, and and I I don't mean to 
um, upset people when I say this. There were many reasons why I, I couldn't get my head around the idea. But I did keep thinking about a prayer that we used to say in the Anglican church that always said that we need to love God with our whole hearts. And I couldn't honestly love God with my whole heart because I'd visualised a pie graph um, and I was busy trying to evaluate where I could allocate my love. You know, and having, I was lying in bed and thinking to myself, well, I love mum, I love dad, I love my brother, I love my cat and I love my grandparents no room how can I love God with my whole heart if I've allocated my love to these people so it's uh it really truly is something I've been thinking about and I think that love begins uh with our evolutionary survival adaptation you know that a lot of therapists and theorists would refer to as attachment and that our very very early experiences of attachment help to inform and develop the patterns that we have for relationships with ourselves and with others and we are directly influenced by our first relationships our attachments with our parents and caregivers and that that influences the rest of our lives the relationships we have with ourselves and others and um and I think in some ways that's terrifying, you know, because by the time we're nine months old, we've already worked out how lovable we are, you know, and how reliable and accessible others are and how safe our world is. Mm. That should blow our minds because yeah. we've already formed these truths about ourselves and others in our world and how safe we are before we're pre-verbal. Yeah. You know, we've we've formed these beliefs and these perceptions in our baby brains, with our baby brains' perceptions of a huge world before we have language or the capacity to ask people, what, you know, am I seeing this right? Is this accurate? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then to carry on those patterns for the rest of our lives is pretty daunting, you know, unless we're motivated to question our experiences and our motivations uh, and our emotional responses so that we so, can... So, Lisa, that... Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So, so with what you're saying, so with the with that very important early influence and, and attachments to key people, if, if a person doesn't know love, at that mm. time, what mm. what does that mean if they don't experience it? If they don't feel safe, if they don't feel safe, I think it. I think it comes down to um, when we feel safe. I think there's a certain sense of stillness that we have of 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 acceptance of ourselves and being able to be informed by our emotions you know, by really, really important emotions such as warmth and affection um, and even sadness to let us know when we're missing a connection or we're missing something that we value. And in order for us to learn our fo first language, which is emotion, we need to have parents who have the capacity and the comfort to sit with their own emotions or sit with their own psychological distress or anything like that and to prize us and value us from the moment we're born, that we're the most important things in the universe to them and that they're going to be present for us 
and that they want to know us because we're us, nobody else, we're just us. You know, and so I think that we need to be wrapped with that. And the thing is that to, in order to have that experience, to understand what love is and to develop self-love, we have to be really immersed in a very kind world mm-hmm. that, that is free from oppressive discourse. You know, yes. and, and that's not an easy thing. It's really not an easy thing, you know, particularly if, if you've already um, been discouraged from trusting your own judgment or trusting your own emotional responses and overriding your gut instinct that will tell you if you're not safe. Or, you know, even, yeah. Oh, sorry, I think we've got a slight time lag from when I start Ah. to speak and you're not sure. Sorry. Um, That's okay. Again, there's a lot in what you're saying. So a lot lot is about how our first first loves, really, the people we have had first connections with, how that goes. And what you're saying about the the broader society, the bigger world, is that that may not be so friendly either. So it's not, it matters how our parents and key carers are with us, but that they're not the only influences, are they, in whether we feel loved and safe in the world? No, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. But but certainly, you know, if you you look at how babies will respond, um, you know, we we learn so much. If, If we've learned all of that by the time we're nine months old, it means that we have observed and experienced. We've observed whether whether our parents have responded to us when we're distressed. You know, how many people were mess, messed up by the belief that you need to spare the rod, spoil the child, and, mm-hmm. and that children should be seen and not heard. You know, mm-hmm. so many of my clients sort of approach me from the point of view of they're just not worthy or, mm-hmm. or they're not lovable or, or they're not safe. Um, and that they feel unheard. You know, they'll they'll keep telling their stories over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you actually hear them and help them to hear their stories and their experiences. So I, I think it really comes down to to so many variables, but it it really comes down to whether we are able to experience compassion and acceptance. And they're not easy qualities to develop, you know, unless we have been immersed in that kind of world. Um, mm. So so how would you, from all of what you've just said, how would you define love then? Oh, I think it's a complex force, you know, and, and it involves so many factors. And I'm sure that I haven't thought of all the factors in the universe that are required um, for this this force. But I think it, it does involve those emotions that I was talking about and it also involves curiosity, you know, curiosity about um, what our motivations are, what our experiences are. And if you can be curious about things, then you can also be open and curiosity and openness allow us to, to learn about others and to connect with others. And then if you have the curiosity and the openness, then you can develop things like empathy. We need empathy because if we don't have empathy, how do we develop compassion? And as I said before, compassion is absolutely necessary for us to develop self-love and to also be motivated to love and serve others. 
So there, there are just so many variables that are absolutely important for us to be able to not just connect and be interconnected like we have to be because connection and um, sort of inter, oh, what's the word that I'm looking for, interdependence is absolutely essential for the survival of all sentient beings. Mm, so that's right. It, it's 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 such a a complex weaving of things, and I and I think that 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 force that involves all of those things the curiosity, the openness, um, the ability to question and to motivate and feel for others, and connect with others, then actually literally maintains and perpetuates the very very existence of our entire ecosystem so when mm-hmm. you think about it like that yeah then I, I think we need to understand love as a, a unifying force that's designed to be able to access liberation and empowerment wow um, that's just gone yeah. really big there that's it, it fascinating has, that's fascinating <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and so I really think that when you think about that, you can think about all the factors and you can think about where it came from in the beginning. But when you have to, when I think about love, I actually think that love should be understood as the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Yeah. It's magic. And- <laughs> so, so one of the, oh my gosh! So one of the things you said early on, and uh, like, uh, is is being. I'm just trying to pick up a thread. You mentioned this incredible word of stillness when you feel loved, mm. and at the mm. time you're talking about parents loving their child, mm. um, and in your professional work, I, I'm I'm wondering, do you, do you become present and still with someone to really listen and hear their stories, and is that how you show love? in your professional space I think so I think I think it it comes down to um I feel incredibly still Mm. you know I, I feel like that all the time and I think it's about being present and always being in the present and that allows me to be really really accessible to them and I think they feel it because I I absolutely I have to say you know okay I have postmodernist constructivist thinking you know in terms of a Foucaultian um, view of the world and I have since I was 18 but I'm deep down a humanist so I absolutely believe um, that we all have potential to be fulfilled that we need to strive to fulfill our potential Correct. and that yep. we are valuable. You know, I, I'm not saying that we're more valuable than animals or anything else, but we are valuable. And I love mm-hmm. that. I love humanity. I love the aspect of humanity, warts and all, you know, because I, I constantly remind my clients that when they're born, you know, I, I actually give them a pillowcase literally give them a pillowcase and say, describe this pillowcase to me. Tell me what, what you notice about it, you know, and they'll hold it in their hands and they'll say, oh, it's so light. It's light. I said, yes, okay, what else do you notice about it? What can you do with it? And they can open it up and have a look. And I said, that's just exactly what babies are like when they're born. 
know, they're light, they're free of burden and they're just open to the universe and absorbing as much information as they possibly can. You know, and then I give them a pile of rocks. <laughs> and I say, okay, just pick up the rock, all right? And we talk about it and the fact that each of these ones, they, they name the rock for the hurt that they've experienced, uh-huh. you know, the, or the trauma response that they're experiencing that have led to all these terrible things. And I invite them to place the rock in the pillowcase and I get them to fill up that pillowcase with all of these rocks and then tell me what you notice. You know, you're carrying around this huge burden. It's so heavy. It's so heavy and you're not even aware of it. No baby deserves to be carrying around that burden. That burden doesn't belong to you. That burden belongs to somebody else and they placed it there. You know, and it may not be their intention to do that. You know, parents have great intentions. They all have great intentions. You know, in, in general, it's just that they may not have the capacity to feel safe with human beings or feeling close to human beings or not safe with their emotions or they just may never have learned the language of love, you know, because yeah. of their own experiences as children. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just amazing to see how they're sort of understanding it or being encouraged to sort of step away from their experiences and just look at it from the point of view of curiosity. You know, well, you know, what was happening in my life then? What are all of these factors that are involved in it? Um, and remembering that in hindsight it's so easy to cast judgment on yourself. But did you have the same knowledge and the same power to make decisions at five years of age that you do at 55? Yeah. So it's, it's um, I guess, I guess I just genuinely love them and they feel it because they'll say that to me, you know, they'll say it. And, and I suppose that's, that's where um, I see the greatest power of love is in the work that I do, you know, because you see the changes in people and you see the... So, he- so it's healing. Yeah. Love is healing. It love is. is healing. It's immensely yeah. healing. Yeah. I think it's, it's the root of most of our problems, isn't it? You know, maybe the if Putin had had a more loving mother and father, you know, or maybe if Trump had had somebody who could have taught him about boundaries, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't be in the situation we're in yeah. in the world. Yeah. And, of course, it's both about our parents and also not about our parents. Do you want to tell people what you mean by post Postmodernist constructivist view of the world, because oh, this is where okay. this is where your social justice view comes from, doesn't it? Well, yeah? it certainly does. Yeah. It, it comes yeah. from it comes from Foucault, um, and I think that it it really is this whole idea of of having a look at how how violent really and how abusive language can be, you know, and it's so um, it's so covert. You know how we accept language that it really impacts a human being. Just if you listen to the language that's used in in politics, in in Parliament House, or in our legal systems, in our apparent justice systems that seem to lack justice in general, or if we look at um, how language is used in in medicine and in education, how language is used about women uh, and how language is used about um, different cultures 
um, and, and we, we can refer to races even though they don't literally exist. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's this whole ideal age, you know, and, and not just ageism at the top end, you know, in, in our elders, but also age in, in youth, you know, assuming that people have not lived um, by the time they're 20. You know, there are people who've done so, many, many laps yeah. by the time they're 10. Um, yes. So it's really having a look at how language is used to be able to maintain power by oppressing others. And mm-hmm. that's why language is so important to me because I listen to language all the time. I yeah. listen to the language of clients. I listen to what's said and what's not said. And I think Foucault is absolutely brilliant in that, you know, th- this whole idea of, well, I mean, he borrowed an idea from Carl Schmitt um, who wrote a, um, a law in 1933 that gave total control for Germany at one stage. And, um, and Carl Schmitt had said that politics is in everything. You know, it exists in everything. Um, and, you know, right down to how we brush our teeth, you know, how somebody tells us we ought to be brushing our teeth or how often we brush our teeth. So I think that, you know, we really need to be asking the question, well, who does this serve when somebody says something like that? And who doesn't it serve? Who does who does it marginalise or who does it um, maintain some kind of crushing force on that it's maintained mm-hmm. a crush on for hundreds or thousands of years. And I yep. don't, we're taught to think for ourselves anymore. I so, really you, so I, like, like I, I have read a bit of Foucault, not as much as you. One of my favourite writers, on, especially on love, is Bella Hooks. And yeah. she, says, she says that where there is love, there is no oppression. And I'm just wanting to cross-link that with what you're saying there. So is part of what you're saying that judgmental, discriminatory, stigmatising language by powerful groups in society Mm. causes oppression and therefore it is not motivated by love? Is that kind of like, would that be how Foucault and Hooks meet? Yeah. I think that they meet on that level and I think also Foucault's great because he was unlike so many other sociologists in that he was sort of he was looking at the intersections intersectionality and he was Mm. looking at how it impacts us and how we internalize that language we internalize Mm. the mechanisms of power um because he was he was talking about it from the point of view if i have an example of something very very simple if you go into maya not that I go into it often, um, but if you ha- um, if you go into Maya, you'll see that it looks really open. It looks quite friendly and it looks exciting and there's lots of colour and stuff like that. And there are mirrors everywhere. And you think, oh, that's handy, you know, when I try my cool sunglasses or a dress or something like that, heaven knows what you're doing in Maya because it's really gone downhill for many, many years. But, you know, are the mirrors there for it, for your convenience? Are the mirrors there for you to constantly check your behaviour to make sure you're not shoplifting? You know, it, it's so subtle. It's so subtle the way we organise mm. even our architecture 
And so after a while, we're able to internalise and scrutinise our own behaviour all the time. We're constantly looking at our own behaviour. It's not dissimilar from an abusive relationship. Yeah. You know, where where you where your power is whittled away slowly in a flattering kind of a way, in a way that, well, I'm hooked in, you know, chemicals and all and hormones and all, and I love this person. And so anytime they do something really, really rotten, just a little bit rotten or a little bit scary, you think, oh, they're just having a bad day. You know, you make allowances for them just like you do your own kids so that you don't kill them, mm-hmm. you know, when they're little. Um, but after a while, you start internalising their rules and adjusting your behaviour accordingly and giving more and mm. more of your way until you don't know you're doing it. And what you're doing really is just checking your own behaviour to the point you, you've lost you've lost your power and you've lost your sense of self and you've lost your stillness. Yeah. So and one of the things... Regard. Yeah, absolutely. And so... so in the name of love, it isn't necessarily love that's happening is part no. of what you're saying. And love can be used well, to cover all sorts of abuses, it, can't it? Well, it can. I think that um, I think that there's real love that's involved sometimes in abusive relationships, even if it's one-sided love. You know, you can truly love a person uh, and yet you can still be oppressed by them. You know, when I when I think about my relationship with my parents I knew that they loved me Mm. I knew it but did I feel it you know for the most of my childhood and and young adulthood right up until I was about I don't know probably 48 um no I didn't I didn't generally feel loved because Mm. I didn't feel known and I didn't feel safe not being known I couldn't feel that stillness so yeah, love was there. I have no doubt about it. They weren't they weren't deliberately cruel, misguided maybe, but but not cruel. They actually loved me and had the right motivations. But I was still oppressed by my mm. attachment relationship with them. Mm. So see, I that's, think that see, that's they, interesting. Yeah, I think they can coexist. I think love and oppression can exist. They can coexist to the point that there's so much cognitive dissonance in one's head, you'd imagine that your brains could explode out of your ears. But is that yeah, true? Yeah, I got you. No. Like, well, see, bell hooks. Yeah, it's not yeah, true. I got love. you. you there know? you go. Because yeah. bell. Ah, uh, yeah. I, th- I think that's, that's a good way of making that distinction because bell, bell hooks would say that any any type of abuse and uh, yeah oppression of people or groups is not love so that's a that's obviously an ethical position what you're talking about is in reality it can be much messier than that and when you mention the concept of true love true love um uh nat han who's a buddhist monk talks about true Mm. love and that's very much about self-love as well as how we love others and it is free of abuse it is free of abuse it it, it is and i think that 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 true love necessitates compassion and self-compassion. Yeah. I think that that, that, that makes the difference. Um, yep. And being unconditional, I think unconditional love that's based on compassion is, you know, like like it's your gold standard love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and that there are there are varying levels of it according to our own capacity and experiences and knowledge. 
and growth. No. Correct. Because uh, imagine if you're, we all popped so, out so, of the womb, totally okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, be a different world, wouldn't it? Like so. It so part of what you're saying, well, a lot of what I'm hearing you say, is that love is a central life force, and you haven't used this language, but I think you mean when you're talking about discourse, there are inequalities and injustices that cause mm. harm at the mm. interpersonal level through to the whole societal level, and yes. that. And people can have a mix of experiences, even in the one relationship, of love and hurt, being hurt and oppressed. So my question now is, um, if that pattern of oppression and abuse continues, it surely must must undermine the love that is shown. And somewhere someone has to, and this is Bell Hooks' idea, someone, yeah. uh, the oppressor, the person causing the harm or the organisation causing the harm, need to be accountable for the harm, and they need to basically stop it, absolutely, you know, and and make amends and show yes. proper regard and justice yes. to people. We so, so would you qualify? Yeah, would you qualify what you're saying a little bit then before where you're saying that love and oppression can happen together? That at some point, at an ethical level, the people causing the harm need to change their behaviour. Yeah, absolutely, and, and stop mm-hmm. being abusive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it it's yeah. it's just appalling. I mean, it, it's appalling on every level. It's never, never, never okay to disempower somebody else. Uh, you know, and and we can we can try to excuse ourselves by saying, "Well, I was just trying to help." You know, but mm. when you're trying to help, what are you doing? You know, you're crossing a boundary there. You're disempowering somebody else. So I I think absolutely yeah. we have to call people to account, and we have to challenge the way things are because there are better ways of doing things you know it's not okay for for um i was going to swear then but um it's not okay for people (laughs) like scott morrison you know to be sitting on the back bench was he's caused so much harm and suffering and and directly killed people by his his whole robo debt scheme and by his mm-hmm. by the trashing of human services and by his operation sovereign borders where he just managed mm-hmm. to transgress international law you know that mm-hmm. that is inexcusable it's inexcusable yeah. and whilst everybody sits back and says oh that's all right or it's not happening to me then aren't we being bystanders and aren't we just as culpable yeah. as the man sitting on the back bench yeah. How is it that we go and we don't question these things? Yeah. When do we take a stand? And, you know, and that's why um, I have envisaged myself probably from around about the age of 12 <laughs> as being a little French mouse with a beret who worked for the underground and waved a baguette in the air all the time you know, because I really believe in revolution like that, that we have to have revolutionary ideas and to be able to you know, with a real revolution, it's an entire spin of the wheel. But we need to be moving that wheel forwards. You know, we can't we and can't love, start off is and love the right way. To the beginning. No, is love the way to do that? I think it's it love the answer love. and the way. Absolutely, we have to have love yeah. for our ecosystem. We have to have love for each other you know, in order to be able to have the motivation for a revolution. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's and, right. You know, like, Cornel West, uh, who was a friend of uh, Bell Hooks, said, "Sorry, Cornel West says um, that love is uh, just is what love is what justice looks like in public." And I just really like that when when we can witness, but also in private, hey, when we can witness someone being treated fairly and honourably, that is love. It and is. when we see other species not being used for human consumption, that is love and so mm. on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There are, there are so many expressions of it. Uh, but absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has to. I, I think for me, love is is serving it's serving others it's serving society and it's being able to make change that's for the greater good for me it's often about self-sacrifice because you still you always get something back in some way and it reminds me actually of of um paul mccartney's song the end you know the love we take is equal to the love we make now, it's a really lovely idea, a really lovely phrase, and I think that that's, um, I think that's what motivates me. I, I really do. Um, so, yes. Um, so, in theory, <laughs> I agree with Bell Hooks. You know, I agree with her, if, even though there, there's there's part of it that I would, you know, I'd say, oh, that might be a bit extreme. You know, it might be sort of, it, you need to see shades of grey here because. Uh, human beings are incredibly complex complex beings we're just animals with animal instincts and animal instincts for survival there's no difference between our emotions and their emotions Uh, Darwin proved that a hell of a long time ago or at least hypothesized it well before people cottoned on to the idea but I, I, I think that we we have to have compassion for people who are making very poor decisions at the same time to be able to put them yep. in context. I think, well, why are they behaving and the to way invite they are? Them. Yeah, and yep. to invite them to change. That's the principle of um, Gandhi's idea of nonviolence, that that we invite the oppressor to change their behaviour for their own moral good and for others' good, yeah? Mm, and mm. I like that. You can't force you can't force people to change because then you become part of the problem. But that yeah. idea of inviting people to behave differently is is kind of inspiring to me. Yeah. yeah. I think so. I think it's modeling. You know, it's modeling behavior. Yeah. You know, how 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 yeah. do my clients learn to love themselves unless I model that myself? You know, if I'm sitting yeah. on the other yeah. side, uh, you know, on a on a chair and Sort of at an angle from them. Um, if I'm full of self misery and self loathing, and messed up, and have um, a lack of trust in in other human beings, what are they going to learn? Mm. They're just going mm. to learn that they need to perpetuate that same self image. But if yeah. I if I come across as somebody who knows myself well and actually likes myself, and if I were to go so far as to say I love myself. You know, I do, you know, like I love who I am um, and I'm able to be then open with them and they feel that self-compassion and they feel the compassion I'm directing towards them. You should see the way their, you know, their physical appearances change and their language about themselves and the world changes and their ability to be able to consider other people's perspectives. Yeah, because that's when I know that the power of love is working, when they can do that. 
you know, and when they can report back that their relationships with themselves and with others have changed and that others have changed around them because they're so accessible, then I know that the ripple effect of love is actually working. You know, so we start off little so and then nice. just boom. You know? Yeah. That's that's really I love listening to how you're thinking about and actually practicing how you work with people. I have a concept of brokenheartedness, and I wonder with the people you work with, whether you're seeing brokenheartedness. And what I would say about that, it takes many forms, and it has a lot of trauma in it, especially trauma that's been caused by violence. Mm. Um, And I think the answer is love. And so, do do you think that that language of brokenheartedness gets at some of what? is happening for people who you see in your work absolutely and I think you know we physically feel it you know and when you when you think about memory and the way it's stored and trauma memory and the way it's stored you know in in our physiological responses and in our memory and in our emotions that we know that there are these neurotransmitters that are stored in our heart so a heart remembers that truth and literally people will die from a broken heart. And yeah, and everybody yeah. knows the excruciating feeling of being broken hearted. Um, and yeah. it's sort of like your whole world shatters, your whole worldview and sense of worthiness shatters, you know, and, and, and that's that's why I called my my book Finding My Invisible Son, you know, because it felt to me like that the son that I was born with, you know, when I was so incredibly hurt um by my parents view of me not knowing all of me that it was almost like that that whole invisible sun was just you know eclipsed it was just lost you know so I had I had to I had to um to go on a a sort of I don't know it's almost like a crusade of self-discovery and trying to to find that invisible sun again um so I, I think that yes, I, I I think broken heartedness is incredibly real. Incredibly and real. Do, do you want to say to people whether you find your invisible sun and whether it's shining? Oh, it's <laughs> it's undeniable. <laughs> I would say you found it. And how, how, do, you, how yeah. do you do you, do you want to give a little clue in, into how your own journey of self-love and learning to love yourself helped you find that invisible sun? How did, how did you come to do oh. that? Can you say that in a kind of a nutshell? Now, that's asking a lot because your book talks about it in a long, long version. Can you give us a little it does, condensed yeah, actually, version? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting question now because my head's so full of the other stuff there's no space left to even remember <laughs> it's just it's, it's just um <laughs> well, okay let, let, let me uh, uh like I, i'm sorry that Deanne, maybe i should read i should i should read your book for you um yeah, no, yeah, what, would yeah. be, <laughs> what would be one example of something that helped you start believing in yourself again or, um, or for the first time even, yeah. For the first time, I, well, to be perfectly honest, I think it was being able to meet um, a, a therapist um, who 
I mean, I I had very very little exposure with um, a a clinical psychologist who was a real human being, and I, he expressed a sense of valuing me. You know, it didn't matter what he did. He wasn't um, he wasn't into CBT and things like that. But he was certainly into talk therapy and he had interests that I had interests in. So in interests in, in culture and music and um and in um Freud, in, in the early Freud that was really looking at um the problem of memory and the fact that trauma is stored in our memory, so we're stuck in time and in Jungian theory, you know, which is really, really arty kind of theory and it's really deeply humanitarian. And he was surprised that I was interested in that because when I was studying, had, had studied psychology, you know, Freud was a bad thing and, and Jung was a bad thing. Mm. And, um, and it's just really very deeply sad because they've forgotten their own roots. Um, but he, he spoke a language that I understood and he listened to me and he didn't judge me. He just accepted everything. You know, right down to when I questioned my own intelligence, and um, I won't use the word that he used um, on, on your screen because you speak so nicely. But it, it shocked <laughs> me. If I'd had a mouthful of water, it would have gone like this. Um, but it, it, it was so lovely, and I could see that it was so real what he thought. Um, and one day, um, I had been so incredibly sad and brokenhearted again. Um, and I remember just sobbing in front of him, you know, because I was trying to tell him what had happened to me when I was little. I, I couldn't get the words out. I never, I never told him. And he said, this is you, you know, and he got up and he played me a clip from a, a YouTube clip of a fellow playing classical guitar and it was George Harrison's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And I thought, oh, you know, he's just far out you know it, it was just so poignant and I thought mm. this man really gets me he actually loves me that's that's what I felt and and then he said to me something about you have to you have to know I can't remember the exact words but he talked about that there were still burning embers there were still embers that were glowing and all you have to do is blow on it gently you know to light it back up again and that's when I thought, oh, this man gets me. You know, I'm worth something. And so it, it was, it was amazing then that I was thinking, this is what I've got to do. I've got to, I've got to find my light. You know, and if it hadn't been for the terrible, terrible mental health treatment that I was given for what I think was probably complex trauma. But um, here I am being diagnosed with bipolar disorder one, which is is such a, a stigmatizing label to be given, and then to be treated really badly with medications that were so bad for me, and to not be listened to by systems that were so much more, you know, so much bigger and more powerful, and so incredibly abusive and disempowering. Um, that led me down this terrible path where I was just thrown off course for a career that I, I could possibly have been good at um, and uh, and messed up terribly, uh, that I ended up in a, a mental health hospital or institution um, that, again, was so dehumanising 
um, that when I came out of that, I was angry. I was angry. And I had been even more traumatised and I could possibly have been traumatised, mm-hmm. you know, and here I am thinking, well, this is so bad, you know, and I'm talking with my friend and stomping up and down a beach and saying, you know, when is somebody going to help me? You know, and, and for her to just say, well, you know, you, you've got to do it yourself. And I was, jeez, oh, everything I've had to do myself, you know, I was just really really upset at that and I didn't um I didn't say that to her because I felt hurt but she was right you know so that that's when I went on this whole thing of right I've got to I've got to write this down you know so that's so the first few chapters here I am writing and and telling pouring my heart out about my views on things and my experience as an early child and then I had to stop you know because life got busy and I ended up um finishing another degree and uh two degrees and uh and then um and then working in a in a um a uh a domestic and family violence prevention um organization for another five years or so so I had to stop writing but I was busy researching the whole time because I had these ideas in my head about well what's necessary to heal people you know, and here I'm thinking it's resilience, but it wasn't resilience. What a load of rubbish. You know, we're all resilient, but, but how do you heal? How do you actually heal and how do you, how do you change society and society's views on what mental health and mental illness is and why aren't they one and the mm. same? Why isn't it just mm. mental health? And why are mm. we separating the brain from the body, you know, far out? You know, it, it, it absolutely makes no sense when you think that your no. gut is also your brain. What are you going to do? Carve us up and disseminate yeah. us. It, it's impossible to do that. It's totally irrational. So the people making the policies, are they the ones that are irrational and ignorant? But whatever it is, it's oppressive. So so that's how it came about, that I just started <laughs> discovering more and more things and and looking into medicine and pharmaceutical companies and and whether the people who are making decisions on other people's behalves are actually knowledgeable about what they're doing Mm -hmm. and are they listening so it just became uh became something that i just had to do i had to write the book i had to finish the book and um and fortunately by the time i actually got to writing two-thirds of it I was well and truly well and um and free of <laughs> ridiculous medications and thinking to myself well maybe the original diagnosis was incorrect and maybe it, it shouldn't have been founded on two pages in the DSM and maybe I have a better way of looking at things you know with mm-hmm. with the social theory that I wrote um so <laughs> Yeah. Because according to me, there was no social theory that would fit me, <laughs> just like there was no decent Archibald Prize. <laughs> um, so, Correct. It's true. Yeah. It's true. You're a you're multidimensional, amazing human being um, <sighs> in the way of your own journey toward healing and now paying it forward yeah, to the people you work with. So is mm. your next book a continuation of your exploration of love? Is that a way yeah. of thinking about it? it? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it's more, um, I suppose, 
it it has to involve love um because life involves love um but it was really sort of like a um a diving board off from where I finished with my book because the whole time that I'd been writing my book the thing that was holding me back and the thing that was holding me back from publishing my book was that I did not want to hurt my parents or shatter my parents views Um. of the world yeah, so that's what I mean by attachment. Wow, you know the things that we do for attachment, and also the things we do for love, and that makes me feel like singing a song. It's Huey Lewis. It's, it's terrible. Everything I say that comes out of my mouth, I think of a song. I've been holding back <laughs> Tina Turner and all sorts of things throughout this whole conversation, but um, and I kept thinking, well, now my readers are going to be really confused because I've said all along that I'm not going to tell my parents. So what's happened? Do they know? Or am I having to keep it quiet in Dimex <laughs> and Walmart? Um, but no, I did. I Because out of respect, I actually um, asked them when I'd finished writing if, um, if there was a reason why I wasn't allowed to tell my father what happened to me. Was there, you know, a reason and was it something to do with, was it, were you trying to protect your own relationship or were you, trying to protect him from his um, unfailing faith in God and things like that. So I really wanted to know whether I was going to harm somebody because it's an important value to me. Non-maleficence is an important value. Um, mm. and, I, uh, and, of course, it wasn't the case, and I think my mother had been so in shock at the time that she, she didn't actually think at the time. And she hadn't thought it through and then thought, well, that's your information to give, but I'm not going to be giving if my mother told me, don't tell your father. Of course I'm not. Um, So I had to explain, well, why am I writing this book? How have I been able to publish it? And what did I need to do to be able to do that, to be able to tell my truth? And so it's really about, truth telling this book and how okay. important it is to be heard so that my clients will then know what they need to be able to do to heal to actually be heard and mm-hmm. to question everything that has happened to them and how did it make them respond what meaning did it have for them and in what what knowledges do we need to have a look at because it's really looking at there are so many knowledges in the world there are so many truths in the world there can't be one truth but maybe we can find an intersection amongst all those knowledges because they're all useful and come up at that point of the intersection to challenge the power so that's actually breaking through the barriers of that intersection to discover a new knowledge and a new truth about ourselves so that's where the revolution occurs in that intersection So I'm sort of trying to work through that so that it's in three parts so that I'm really looking at what are the ethics involved in good therapy and what's absolutely necessary in terms of what can we do to help a person feel like they're valuable and loved and safe. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's breaking it down so there's lots and lots of different philosophies that I look at, a hell of a lot of challenging the status quo the whole way through. You might be forgiven for thinking I might really, really lean to the left, 
um, throughout it, um, and you could be absolutely correct about that. Um, and um, you might gather that I may be a raging atheist as well, um, and you'd be right about that as well. But that doesn't mean I'm disrespectful for anybody else. Um, and then I sort of have a whole uh, part at the end that is um, a sort of a, an exposition on my artwork so that I really go through each painting to explain, well, what's, what are the symbols here and, and, and where was I at when I painted these things or drew these things so that people might have a, an understanding of the other language that I use um, and they might just be interested. Uh, so I, that that's pretty much... Uh, what it's about but it's very it's very very complex I thought that it was going to be shorter than the book that I've just written I'm so wrong you know because <laughs> I'm so wrong about that I, I think <laughs> I it think sounds like quite the, a book <laughs> make a good doorstop <laughs> um by the time it's finished it'll be pretty heavy but it's fun and it's all about oh, my compassion, goodness really compassion yeah oh my goodness is that what you're calling it? Um, I'm calling. What are you calling it? it? Uh, good question. I'm calling it. Um, oh, a point is called um, points of resistance theory breaking down the barriers. Oh, my goodness me! My goodness, breaking down the barriers. So it, it is. It's incredibly. I think it's going to be really really powerful and I really wanted to write it because you know when my husband finished reading my book he said you really have to do something with this theory you know this social theory because it's it's when you use it you use it like it's an umbrella for how you live your life you know it's it's incredibly important people need to know about it and the director of the place where I work said to me you've got to write this book because you have so much to teach people and I thought well okay <laughs> well I'll have to do it and it's going to yeah. have to be some kind of textbook but a literary textbook yeah. book because literature is so important to me so it's it's um it's it's really quite um quite I think it'd be quite different but who knows you know it's not going to be a bestseller yet again. No. It's, it's going to be a niche market type uh, thing, as per usual. But uh, I'm, I'm loving it. I well, enjoy what I do. Yeah. So, what about your book, Lisa? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, look, another day I'll tell you all about it because I'm just still trying to get my head around your book, which sounds amazing. Um, and your first one is, and I encourage people to read it. And I think that's one of the things that we we are reconnecting around our writing, isn't it? And how we use mm. our writing to reach out into the world and hopefully resonate with people. So one of the things I'd say about mine, which is current in copy editing stage, luckily, um, is. Mm. What, what I think is, and I'd be interested in your point of view and maybe getting toward the end of our conversation at this time, is um, I'm saying that people who are brokenhearted, especially where there's been violence and unfairness in how they've been treated, yeah. um, when, they act, when they pivot on that pain and trauma and act out into the world with love and kindness and yeah. compassion, it is the most incredible revolutionary force on the planet that and not that we should rely on broken-hearted people to lead the revolution but I think they are because I mm, think they mm. know how important love is because they have have lost it 
or being betrayed yes. in the name of love. And so that yeah. idea of pivoting on the pain of brokenheartedness to transform it into loving mm. power mm. Mm. is what I'm really fascinated with. And I think the theory you're talking about is very much about how to do that. So yes. we might have to um, <laughs> compare notes down the track a bit and I can we might. I'm be happy to always promote your work, of course. But what do you oh, think about you, that Nils. idea? What do you think oh, totally. of that idea of pivoting? I think it's absolutely essential because we, we have choice. We can instead of crumple in a heap and become bitter and twisted about it or we can harness the anger we feel that's telling us that we need to redress and address the violation of our core values, mm. which is our mm. sense of self and love. Um, mm. And so if we harness that for good instead of for going out and lashing out at other people, um, like I, I have to say, you know, a hell of a lot of people do. Uh, you know, it seems to be yeah. like a defence, it, it seems to be like a default mechanism, you know, particularly yeah. if we're not raising our children and particularly our boys well, you know, to be able to listen to yeah. their emotions. So we really do. We need to be able to, to harness that anger and pivot it towards making change. You know, and yeah. e and even if it means challenging those people in positions of, of apparent authority, which is not authority, it's just power, uh, I, I think that that's absolutely essential and we don't want so many broken hearts, do we? We really don't. No. We want to be able to to keep them safe and to, and to feel and loved. loved. Yeah, loved. and to allow them to grow. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm actually very excited about your book. I really want to hear it. Is it is it full of individual stories about broken hearts, or is it just um, a whole theory? Yeah, it? Uh, like it's uh, it's based on my story from childhood, growing up in domestic violence, then mm -hmm. aspects of my professional life and key influences in my life. Not only people, but books I read at certain points, and yeah, so it is really my story and how mm. I currently take, uh, it finishes with some personal essays on how I take responsibility to ensure that my way of being in the world causes no harm. So it's kind of deeply Absolutely. reflective sections at the end. So it's Beautiful. kind of it's kind of a big, big, big hoo-ha of a book, <laughs> big hoo-ha. Well, I it sounds think like that's <laughs> marvellous because I could see, I can see it in, um, if I may reflect on the uh, podcast that you had with Wally, um, the um, that I watched recently, I could see, you know, I could see the love between the two of you and the deep respect that's absolutely uh, beautiful to look at and in, and it's absolutely necessary for a really healthy relationship and healthy attachment and it never ceases to amaze me that people who have experienced terrible broken hearts from when they're, you know, when they're little human beings mm. somehow know, you know, that, that essential humanity with them, them knows that that's, that's wrong, that's not the way you have a relationship and that you deserve more and that you would never, never, never do that to another human being mm. and that you're capable of creating that safe space for them despite what you've experienced. Yeah. That's incredibly powerful and transformative. Yeah. How marvellous human beings are, Yeah, really. No limits, yeah. really. No limits, a little, little dab of love at the right time and we flower. 
Absolutely. Hey. Yeah. Hey, hey. Yeah. Look, we, we could talk all night. And we one day one day we will. When you finished your book and when I finish mine, we'll get together and be real book book nerds, all right? And have a good old rave. Hey. Is there a last oh, comment, you. Lisa, you would like to make as as wrapping up this podcast conversation? Well, I'd just again like to thank you for the experience. You made it so easy for me to have a um have my first podcast. It it just felt so good. Fairly sure I didn't say everything I wanted to say, but I said so much more that I didn't know that I was going to. So, <laughs> so thank you so much. You've given Lee Sales a run for her money, that's for sure. Uh, so thank you. Thank uh, you. Uh, mm. uh, big cheer to you. Thank you for being in the world. Thank you for all that you do and all that all of who you are. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you too, Deanne. Have a lovely night. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.